Well, good morning. I'm fully aware that uh, Ecclesiastes is probably the last thing you want to talk about this morning, but uh, it's good. It's biblical, and it's God's Word, and really, we could go from any part of God's Word and, and get some benefit from it, so I'm, I'm trying to encourage you to have positive thoughts about our negative text. Um, we're going to have a good time diving into Scripture this morning, so go ahead and grab your Bible, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to pick up in verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11. Let's do a little bit of setup as we go into this. Um, does anybody like watching Christmas movies at Christmas time? Bah, I heard one bah humbug, okay? Uh, two bah humbugs. There, there's, there's a validity to that because let's be honest, a lot of Christmas movies are just terrible. We only like them because they're nostalgic. You know what I'm talking about? Like the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Who, who likes that movie? It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that movie was so bad. Listen, guys, that movie was so bad, it bankrupted the company that made it. Like, it, you only liked that movie because it was free to rerun on television and through programming. They showed you that movie over and over and over again, and then one day you realize you like it. You don't. You like Christmas. And that movie reminds you of Christmas. The theology in that movie is terrible. Like, every time a bell, a bell rings... False, not true, okay, not biblical at all. Okay, I say all of this, it's my favorite Christmas movie, okay, I'm a hypocrite, I'll fully admit that, but I find that the older I get, the the crankier I get regarding some of this stuff. I'll watch like the newer Christmas movies, and I watch the movie, and I'm just like, this is really dumb, you really, I mean, okay, I love Elf, I'm just honest, like, I feel like that's kind of a... I feel like I'm admitting some deep, dark sin that way. I like the movie Elf, okay? But it also is a terrible movie. I mean, what's the message of that movie? Believe. Have Christmas spirit. And it's like, well, believe in what exactly? You know, there's this letdown. I have a notorious reputation for when people ask me what I think about a movie. Even if I like the movie, the first thing I do is tell you everything about the movie I hated. Um, And so don't ask me about the new Star Wars movie. Right? I'll just, everybody's like, oh no, don't spoil it. I'm not going to do that. I won't. Um, we won't. We'll talk about it later. Not from the pulpit, though. It's not, not the place or time for that. All right, but you ever get that way? You just look at things that are supposed to be really good, and then you, you kind of come at it, and you're like, yeah, but here's all the things wrong with it. This is why I can't watch Christian movies, because I feel like Christian movies always get cheesy somewhere, and that's like kind of painful for me. And you ask me what I think about the Christian movie, and it's like, don't ask me. I'm that guy who's going to be critical and tell you everything they did wrong, even if I did kind of like the movie. That's just just how I get with things. There's a sense in which we could do that in any category in life. Like, we really like something, there's some food we enjoy, or some experience we enjoy, and really you could say it's about the Christmas season. Um, We come together, Christmas is supposed to be that time where everything's happy, where everybody just has peace, you're supposed to get together and be friendly and love each other, but I don't know about you, but my experience in the past with Christmas doesn't necessarily line up with that. Anybody ever kind of get, you know, oh, yay, Christmas, oh, 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 Christmas. (laughs) Well, we know who feels this way, you know. Um, Well, there can be a disillusionment that happens. You you might like something as a kid. You grow up, you know, maybe you were, you know, a wrestling fan, and then one day you discover it's all fake, and it's like, oh, sorry, Mm. I just barked up the wrong tree. I, I'll, I'll back down. All right. Point, point is, there's a tendency to, 
maturity can have this correlation that you realize something is, is not everything is cracked up to be. I mean, we could do this in any category. We call the first two years of marriage what? The honeymoon stage. And then what happens after that? And everyone who's been married is like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, reality sets in. So there's this tendency for all people, you know, maybe somebody's just that really you see the good in everything sort of person. That person exists every now and then, the unicorn in the room. But most of us reach some point in life where almost anything is disillusioned. You're like, man, this is just not all it's cracked up to be. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is. And so let's just, for the sake of the message, let's just say Solomon wrote this book. He's most likely a historical candidate anyway. So Solomon writes this book, and it's like a man who's very intelligent, very wise, very open-minded, really in a lot of ways, at the end of life saying, all right, let's just be real about a few things. And that's why the book is called Ecclesiastes. That's just, go back to the original Hebrew, it would have been Koheleth, it was just the guy at the front of the room kind of speaking his mind. Um, you get in a, a rally together, you gather people together, and somebody does the talking. That's what that term Ecclesiastes means. So Solomon is that guy. He's thought this through. He's looked at life. He's seen the disillusionment of life. But he still believes in God, still has a higher view of what God is doing in the background, yet he lives in the real world. And he's trying to just sit us down and say, guys, here's how this works. Let's just, let's be real for just a minute about the world we live in. Now, we've seen some ups and downs, and maybe mostly downs, honestly, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Lots of uh, disappointments, lots of discouraging truths, but today, unfortunately, will be no different than that. And so as we dive in, I'm going to do the reverse this week as we did last time. Last time, we set up and kind of gave you the principles and then went to the text. This time, we're going to walk through the text and then at the back end, come out, come out with the principles. So just one kind of big disclaimer going into the passage. We need to recognize as we read Ecclesiastes that we operate with different cultural paradigms than the author of Ecclesiastes does. We like to, in our American culture, Western culture really at a larger scale, we like to say things precisely and bullet point them. I mean, typically your, your typical sermon is considered, you know, three points in a poem. Right, we, we like this structure. And so if you look at religious books written in the last several centuries, they're arranged by category. They make a lot of propositional statements. And I'll be, be honest, I love that about our culture. I, I think that way. It works well, for me, but the further you go back in time and the closer you get to biblical ideologies, the less categorical anything becomes. You read Ecclesiastes from beginning to end and you try to outline the book, it can become very difficult. And sometimes when we want to share a story, we recognize that storytelling and you know, maybe teaching are very different practices. When I'm teaching, I categorize everything. I put, or let's talk about the negative stuff. Let's talk about the positive stuff. Let's talk about this doctrine. Let's talk about that doctrine. When I tell a story, however, it's more of just the ebb and flow of life. And in Ecclesiastes operates in that vein. It's just the ebb and flow. So we're going to see a lot of ups and downs in the text as we go. But let's look at those ups and downs. I'm going to come back and just put the pieces together in our Western sense when we're done. So this is going to be Ecclesiastes um, in the raw, so to speak. So we're going to dive in chapter 9. Verse 11, and let's see what's going on here. So again, I saw that under the sun, 
The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So this expression under the sun, just his way of saying life, he's saying, I'm looking at the world, and I can tell you over the course of many years of observing reality, the race is not necessarily won by the fastest guy. Now we would say, well, isn't that exactly what happens though? The fastest guy should, should win the race, but not if he hurts his leg or trips or false start. There's a lot of little things that could happen that could prevent the fastest one from winning. Or, or the battle doesn't always favor the strong. In fact, I mean, half of our movies, we would have to give up. Half of our stories, we'd have to throw away if it was the strong that won every time. We don't even get excited about that. We like underdog stories. We know this is true. Bread doesn't always go to the wise. Riches don't necessarily go to the intelligent. I don't think I have to argue that at all. We look around our world. We know this is a fact. Favor does not necessarily favor those with knowledge. Why? Because time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance. So there's this tendency in Christian circles to avoid this word, chance, um, because we don't like the idea of things just happening at random because we have a sovereign God who operates in the world. And that is true, but we can still talk about chance. That's perfectly appropriate to say this. And many of us don't like games of chance because we don't want to play a game where I can't through skill win. Anybody play the board game Risk? Yeah, yeah. That, that game can be fun, and it can also make you want to, you know, break a few commandments. All right? It's just because if you know anything about the game, you may have 500 armies, which is a little bit of an exaggeration, going up against three, and those three might win. Because what determines victory is literally the role of the dice. Those of you who have played the game know what I'm talking about. And we avoid, there's a tendency to avoid games that feature chance as a primary role. Because, you know, if, if there's no guarantee that there's a cause and effect relationship between skill and outcome, I don't want to play the game. But there's a reason we play games of chance. Because if we played a game and there was a direct causative effect between skill and outcome, who wins every time? The most skillful player. And now no one wants to play because we know the skillful player is the one who will win. Well, the reality is life is much like that game of chance. Now, there's no necessarily direct connection between skill and wisdom and outcome. I mean, there is. In many ways, we see that connection all the time, but it's not guaranteed. This is what he's saying. So, verse 12, for man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So you get the illustration there. You're, you're going about life, and then disaster strikes. You had no control over it. It just came. He's going to give more examples. Verse 13, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So do you see the vanity he's finding there? Not in that the small man who was wise defeated the large man, but rather that it doesn't matter because he just got forgotten. 
There's vanity in that. But he's seeing wisdom here favorably. Says, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now that's going to send him in a new direction, but let's just kind of summarize, recap what's said so far. So one, there's no direct, always cause and effect relationship. Being wise does not necessarily mean things work out for you. But then he gives an illustration where being wise is exactly what worked out for this man, small, poor king. So he's not discounting wisdom. What's he doing with wisdom here? There's, he's saying, he's backing up and saying, even though that guy never gets remembered, I still think that's better. Better to, to be that wise man that, that isn't remembered, who, who did the good that he could. That's what we've said so far. Now, we'll, we'll put all of this together in the end. So chapter 10, verse 1. Remember, there's no chapters and verses in the original text, so, so don't differentiate these texts. This leads right out of the one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. You follow that, right? That's pretty simple. You see a dead fly in your food, and uh, what do you do now? Most of you don't eat it. I'm just hungry sometimes. I don't know. There's just, you know. But I'm with you. I follow the illustration. So you put a dead fly in something you don't want to eat. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You see that it's a, it's a parallel structure. So just like the dead fly and fancy ointment really discredits the entire ointment, a little bit of stupid and something otherwise very smart can still discredit the whole thing. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Insert political joke. All right, but this, this is more just typical life. So if you think about it, most people are right-handed the proper way. I'm just kidding. I know. That was just taking... Historically, though, this was a big deal. Right-handed was seen as normal. Left-handed was seen as weird. And that's why the, in, the, in the tribe of Benjamin, well, for whatever reason, there's a lot of left-handed people in that tribe. And they had a, a group of elite assassins who were left-handed because that threw everybody off on the battlefield. But it was considered different, not considered standard. I know generations back, if you were left-handed and tried to write left-handed in school, what would the teachers often do? Make you use the right hand. Well, I'm thinking about how we even use the words there. There was a shift. So he's just using that as an idea. So to the right... The righteous man goes, the wise man goes, to the left, the foolish man goes. And even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, he's not saying here that a foolish man walks on the street and says, hey, I'm dumb. Hey, hey guys, I'm a fool. Hey, guys, I'm an idiot. That, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the very way the fool walks down the street, everyone can go, that guy's dumb. You see the difference between the two? So what, what's making that so obvious to everyone? We can just look at this guy. We can tell that they're making terrible decisions. They're not connecting the dots. They're, they're being very foolish in their behavior and their, their attitude towards life. It's apparent to everyone. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now, I'd say the last few paragraphs or the last few verses, this feels more like Proverbs than it does Ecclesiastes. Because this is 
This is functional, profitable wisdom. So when someone kind of blows up on you who's your, your superior and you just stay calm, well, that, that's going to bring more rest. Well, that's just a very functional, pragmatic way to live life. I've had that exact scenario happen to me in multiple times where somebody's just kind of blowing a fuse and you just stay calm. And it kind of diffuses the whole scenario. The, the, the wrath is poured out. It's finished now. And instead of you pouring it back, which is our tendency, and creating a cycle, a feedback scenario, it's just, it diffuses the scenario. Well, this is just practical wisdom. So we see this clearly in Ecclesiastes. So that's another piece of our puzzle. We're going to put that together towards the end. So let's keep going. Verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Now see how he follows this. Verse 6. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. Now he's, he's using their cultural understanding of these terms to think through. You've got a ruler. Maybe it's a new young king. And he became king for, he had one primary qualification probably that made him king, and that's that his dad was king. Right? And so he's become king. Solomon may even be thinking about his very own son. If you know the story, Solomon's son Who's, who's, what's the name of the guy that becomes king? Do you remember his name? Rehoboam. It's one of those you wouldn't remember. I was just saying, you know, I had any real nerds in the room. So Rehoboam becomes king, and he does exactly this. Rather than listening to these tried and true, they have worked their way to the top. They have earned their keep counselors. He goes and finds his buddies, these young guys. They've got no experience in the field. They don't, they don't know what they're doing, but they... They know who they want to please. They know who they, whose team they want to be on. And so they give him counsel. And Rehoboam, this young king, whose only qualification is his dad is Solomon. Pretty good reference, by the way. Um, but do you know what he does with the kingdom? He follows the counsel of the young guys instead of the seasoned and splits the kingdom in half for the rest of that section of history. They never come back together. They are destroyed in that state. They... False religion is created because of Rehoboam's actions. And I think this is just Solomon setting this up. you got folly in high places. Verse 7, I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So there's this sense in which the leaders, whether they're foolish or wise, can have very great impact on the entire nation. We don't see this in our own time, whether... And, you know, our current president or the last president, whichever side of the fence you're on, it doesn't matter. You can see this both ways. We can have a ruler who makes decisions that negatively impact millions. And then we cry out in rage. And then we vote again. We switch the colors and we do it on the opposite side. And then we wait a few years. We vote again. We switch the colors and we do it on the other side. It's just seemingly this endless cycle is what it feels like. Now, verse 8, you're going to see we're getting to... A very different kind of feeling in the text. So another piece to the puzzle to add in. So he who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So he who quarries stone is hurt by them. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. All right. So in all of those scenarios, the thing that happens negatively to you is built in to the thing you're doing. This is an illustration for foolishness. So not that any of those things are necessarily wrong in themselves. It's just they all serve as a pretty good example. If you do something stupid, it may turn around and bite you. 
We see this more clearly in verse 10, perhaps. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one succeed. You see how he's working out the analogy? Think axe. If you don't sharpen your axe, you can still chop a tree down. If you sharpen your axe, you can chop a tree down. What's the difference? One's a lot easier. One's faster. It's smoother. And so wisdom has a very clear advantage in these sorts of scenarios. And I love verse 11. This one's just, feels like it's out of nowhere. But if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. I've always wondered this myself. You see someone doing the little serpent thing. I mean, what if you open the the little basket and the serpent comes straight out? I'm not going to mess with snakes. It's just not my thing. You know, so maybe the charmer is being foolish by himself. So it's really what's happening, though. Yeah, we have to be careful how we interpret it, not, not misinterpret it. But really, he's just reversed himself. So wisdom has an advantage. But it doesn't matter how wise you are if it happens before you can use your wisdom. You see both sides of the coin? You've got a plan. You've got this figured out. Eh, maybe. That's why James gives that, if the Lord wills, you should put that in the front of your statement because it's no guarantee that this is going to work out. So he's just reversing, giving both sides of the coin. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and in the end his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him? What will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Now, when we read this in English, it doesn't have the same you know, feeling it would have in the original language. He just said fools are so dumb they can't find their way into town. Right? So it's just a poetic way of he's making wisdom look good, and he's making folly look bad, but then every few verses he makes wisdom look not useful. And so there's this weird tension between these different ideas. And we see this constantly in Ecclesiastes going up and down. Let's just keep going and and reach a point where we can draw this to conclusion. Verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. So we have a foolish king. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So again, we see this great impact of wise and foolish when it's the king Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter. I can totally attest to that. No other food quite quite does the same thing that a good carbohydrate can do. You know, I just, there's something about bread. This is, this is, never mind, I'll go too far. Okay, bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life. I know everybody wants me to camp out there. It says what it says, all right? We interpret that different ways, but no matter how you do it, let's, let's, let's hear the next verse. Money answers everything. Well, that feels very New Testament truth, doesn't it? No, not at all. Money doesn't answer everything, but let's, he, he's being hyperbolic, hyperbolic, Hyper, he, he's going, he's, it's hyperbole, we'll go with that. Um, in all of these scenarios, so let's just, the money one is a good illustration, does money fix things? Yeah, actually, a lot of things it does. It really does. I mean, how many problems in your life would, I mean, you're just looking through your scenario. If you just had maybe a, a, an extra $10,000, how many of you feel like that would fix some of the problems in your life at the moment? The reality is it probably would. Yeah, it, it would help. 
It's certainly, I've been in very different economic strata over the course of my life, and I can say when, when I qualified for food stamps, was a very different life than I live at the moment, and I don't really want to go back, because some things are just easier. You know, hey, we're out of sugar. Can you run to the store and get some? There was a time in my life, it was like, let me check the account, right? Sugar might be out of the budget for the next few days. You've been there. You, you know, your month lasts a lot longer than your monthly paycheck does. You get a little bit more money, and well, I mean, the month goes smoother. I mean, this is exactly what Dave Ramsey teaches. Anybody follow the Dave Ramsey stuff? You kick Murphy out of the house if you have an emergency fund. We are saying to a very large degree that money does answer a lot of problems. It does answer a lot of questions. It does solve a lot of the things in your life. But we all know very clearly that there's no sense in which the Bible says money, literally, is the answer to everything. We get to the New Testament, we get a much different quote that the love of money is what? the root of all evil. In fact, you read the book of James, it makes it sound like being rich is a sign that you're of the devil. It's just assumed almost that there's this correlation between great wealth and wickedness. So this is certainly an overstatement, but the reality here with wisdom is there is a sense in which money helps. Certainly it does. Bread can make you happy. You know, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. You've heard that expression. That's how Anna got me, you know, it was her cookies and her chicken pot pie. That's what it came down to. Um, maybe not 90% of it. There was, there was other stuff. But uh, you see what I'm saying here. There's, there's truth in all of these statements. But it's not the whole story. And that's really what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Yeah, there's, there's truth in, in lots of, you know, cliche statements. But the fact is none of them are everything. And we better move quicker. All right, let's see. Where are we at? Verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, and some winged creature tell the matter. Now, Solomon does not in any way believe that a bird is going to overhear you and take it to the king. All right, that's, that's not what's being said here. This is, again, it's hyperbole. He's, he's trying to explain the idea that there's a, there's a danger in sharing these things, even privately, because this could come back to bite you. Now, obviously, the greatest way it could come back to bite you is in judgment, which is where we'll be next Sunday when we finish Ecclesiastes. Let's get a few more verses in chapter 11, and we'll, we'll finish this up. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. The, the simplistic way of saying that is be nice to people with your money while you have money, because maybe one day you won't, and those people will be nice to you which we see the exact same thing with Jesus in a parable in the New Testament. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if the tree falls to the north or to the south, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Now, that seems like a very obvious statement. We have a different way of saying this exact truth in our language. We just say um, it's going to happen the way it's going to happen. That, that's all that's saying. It's, it's going to happen the way it's going to happen. It's kind of this recognition that we have to step back, and sometimes we just don't control what happens in life. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. 
So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. That's right, so where we're going to stop today. Let's, let's try to put this together. We're going to run through this pretty quick because I want to get to the conclusion and make sure we're, we're on the same page. So wisdom is better than folly. This is one of the main things we see taught throughout all wisdom literature. And it's especially in Ecclesiastes, we still see this. So wisdom can bring peace and comfort to life. This is a fact. We know that there are things we can do in life that will give us more peace and comfort. And wisdom is the biblical term for those decisions. We make decisions that bring peace and comfort to life. And furthermore, on a larger scale, wisdom can bless the lives of others. And this is one of the the good things about our economy and our ability to to rise up with the strata is you can have enough money to give. And Paul makes this encouragement in the New Testament, work so that you can have, so that you can share. There's we can live in a wise way that doesn't just give us peace and comfort. We can actually bless those around us. We see this example many times in the Old Testament where God's blessing on one man overflows in an entire generation or entire crowd. Everyone that touches him is going to experience blessing. So the reverse of this is true. So folly brings sorrow and destruction to life. I mean, you can see countless examples of this in your life. I don't think we have to argue the case on that one, folly can wreck the lives of others. I mean, how often does someone suffer because of someone else's sin? We see this all the time, especially around a time like Christmas can be a good example of that. I know a lot of broken families for various scenarios. A lot of drama can happen at Christmas time, and it affects everyone, even though maybe only one person was the one doing it. We see this in the world. So there is a very clear distinction. Wisdom is better than folly. However, it's very important in the book of Ecclesiastes, if we get to this next section, God is greater than wisdom. Now, we have to be careful how we say that, but let's let's try to make sense of it. Wisdom cannot outsmart God. Wisdom cannot outsmart God. There's nothing you can do in life that's going to force God's hand. This is what the prosperity gospel ultimately teaches. If you live a certain way, you act a certain way, you can force God to do something. Well, if I tithe, I'm forcing God to take care of my finances. You're not. I can honor God. Well, it says honor your father and mother and you'll, you'll live long. So I honored my father and mother and God has to make me live long. No, sorry. There is no sense in which any of our right living, any of our smart thinking, any of our wise choices ever in any sense, obligate God's hand. Of course, I reference Job all the time. It's a companion book to Ecclesiastes. Job was stated by God himself to be the most righteous man on the planet. And yet, what happens to Job? Everything. His world falls completely apart. And in the end, his answer from God is not an explanation as to why, but simply a reminder to Job that Job is not God. There's, there's no mutuality in that relationship. God is God, and we are people. We do not overpower Him, and therefore wisdom cannot undo God's plan. You know, how many movies, this gets so frustrating, like the word apocalypse, and our culture means end of the world. The Greek word apocalypse does not mean end of the world, it just means revelation. It just, something is revealed. But that's how we use the term. In any apocalyptic movie, the goal of the humans in the movie is to stop the apocalypse, right? Isn't that always what they're doing? In the biblical worldview, who's bringing the apocalypse? God is. 
And instead of trying to stop it, there's statements in the Bible like, oh yes, Lord, come quickly. Very different worldview. There is nothing, nothing in the Bible about us contending with the Lord. So the response to that is submit. Take what the Lord gives. As Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. And before we read the last few points, let's reread verse 8. This is a very good summary of so much of the book of Ecclesiastes 11.8. It says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So let's fill in these last few, and then we will wrap it up. Wisdom is only truly valuable when it submits to God. Don't try to control everything. Rest in God's sovereignty. We live in the opposite of that. Don't try to control everything. Rest in God's sovereignty. Number two, this one's big. Enjoy the good that God has given. What does that proverb tell us to do with the the many days of your life? Rejoice in them all. Enjoy the ones you've got. If you spend too much time focusing on tomorrow, you can't enjoy what's happening today. And then of all seasons, this season we should remember to rejoice in the greatest gift of all, and that is Christ himself. Christ has come. We're told in 1 John, Behold what manner of love has been given to us, that we can be called the children of God. So Ecclesiastes doesn't paint the whole picture. We do end up with this picture of judgment in the end. But we live in a New Testament age where Christ has come, where the glory of the gospel, the covenant of grace has been made full, has been made clear, has been fully revealed to us in Christ. And so we have a hope. We have a joy that no matter what happens in life, the New Testament doesn't come in and fix Ecclesiastes. We don't get to the New Testament and say, oh, wait, no, there is a wise way to live and maximize your happiness and joy in life through wise. It doesn't say that. In a different sense, it pulls you away in the same way from that reality. No, things are not going to go as planned. Expect to be persecuted. Expect things to go wrong. But at the same time, we get this reinforcement of the truth. But rejoice in the Lord Always, again, I say, rejoice. The glory of the New Testament is not an undoing of Ecclesiastes. It's a better emphasis on the person of Christ revealed to us in the Advent, in the Christmas season.